welcome to the Vertiguys show. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we are the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, including the cult hits Lucifer, Hellblazer, Transmetropolitan. And today we are covering Hellblazer special number one, Confessional. Yeah, this is sort of Garth Ennis's Hellblazer annual. And I think this is classic Preacher team. This is... Written by Garth Ennis, art by Steve Dillon, with a cover by Glenn Fabry, right? Absolutely. The colors are by Tom Zuiko, letters by Gaspar, edited by Stuart Moore with assistant editor Julie Rottenberg, and for Malconi, thanks. A uh, quick note, Malachi Malconi is an Irish comics writer and cartoonist. He wrote a piece on the Troubles for the Crisis Anthology in 1989, self-published a number of gay superhero parodies in the 90s, and he co-wrote four issues of The Darkness with Ennis in 98 and 99. I had no idea that Garth Ennis had written some of The Darkness. Yeah. Although, kind of does seem up his alley. Alright, yeah. And special guest star, Satan! (laughs) (laughs) On this cover by Glenn Fabry, we have a crazy, rapturous-looking hippie guy with kaleidoscopic hair. All kinds of different colors in his hair. There are also some screaming skulls in there. I thought that was Satan. Oh, it's probably Satan. I'm just saying, he looks like a hippie. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> Fair enough. He has just, just like your grandparents thought. <laughs> he has red eyes, and there's a stained glass window depicting angels and nuns. There's an arm on a crucifix, and there is what looks like a young John hitchhiking. Yes, indeed. Now we open on John Constantine sitting in a church pew. We can tell from the stained glass behind him. He's looking pensive, and then he glances over, and we see why. He has just bashed a man's brains in on the pew. Seems that way, yeah. He's sitting quite calmly in a church with this dead body. How the fuck did we get here? Yeah, and we get the title page as John regards the crucifix, and the title is Confessional. Steve Dillon's art, I want to call out, is even more subtle and gorgeous than usual. There's more pronounced realistic shading than we usually see. It does look like he took a little extra time with this. We can also see on this page that there is a pile of spent cigarettes next to John on the pew. So he's apparently been sitting here a long time. Right. Angle on the crucifix, as if the crucified Jesus is regarding John back. Yeah, and then the narration brings us into a flashback. So I just nipped out from a 60 silk cut. Good thing, too, because I was going to be needing them the way things turned out. Yeah, as he's leaving the convenience store, he sees the portly bald guy who we have seen dead beside him. There is a deep cut on this guy's face. And the first thing that he does when he sees him is he kind of huddles down in shock against the nearest wall before he's able to go on. Yeah, he kind of dodges into an alley and and just shudders for a minute. He's kind of terrified immediately upon seeing this guy. He quickly recovers. He's, He's got tears running down his face. He says, bastard, I'll get you, you bastard. Yeah, so he's running after the man. His narration is telling us that he wants revenge for something that happened when he was just a kid. And he follows this guy into the church. The same one that we're in in the frame story. Right. The old guy prays, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we, as we forgive. Oh, Lord, I need... Tell me it isn't true, Lord. Make me free. Speak to me. You little shit. Constantine interrupts. And there's Constantine. You. The boy from Liverpool. The hitchhiker. John. Constantine. 
And now we kind of go into deeper flashback, John narrating. It is 1969 and John is not having a groovy time. Well, he, he is when we start. Oh yeah, he definitely is right now. But that's what I've written here. Things seem pretty groovy at first. <laughs> yeah. I like what he says here about, uh, you know that old saying, if you can remember the 60s, you weren't really there? That nudge, nudge, wink, wink allusion to all the hay-like acid we took, man, and the groovy times we had? Well, bollocks, mate. I was there. I remember the frigging 60s, all right. I remember October 1st, 1969, like it was my first day in hell. So we come in on John here. He's in bed with two naked American college dropouts and sharing their weed. Yeah. Apparently, he told them that he was Paul McCartney's cousin. This was apparently very effective. Yeah. John is about 16 in this scene, we can figure from knowing his age. Yeah, and he is in the middle of hitchhiking from Liverpool, where he's from, to London, because he believes his fortune's waiting there. Yeah, so he's already set out to have his adventures at a very young age, and he's apparently... You know, he seems to have convinced these girls that he's significantly older than he is. Oh, you think so? Is there something particular that gave you that idea? Only that they don't treat him like a kid. Well, I don't know, maybe they're on the young side, too. I guess if they're college They're college-aged. Yeah, if they're college dropouts, they might be three to five years older than him. Yeah. So they've stopped for the night outside of Oxford. The girls are turning off for Reading in their love bus, while John is headed for London, so they're parting ways. London, yeah, that's where it was all going to start happening. Liverpool and Dad and all the little minds were behind me. I was heading south to set the world on fire. Nice day for it, he says to himself. And we cut ahead to sometime later, and it is raining hard <laughs> on poor John Constantine. But he's still pretty cheerful, and he's he's got prospects, he thinks. You play the cards you're dealt, and the way I saw it, I had my youth, the old Constantine charm, a new life in London and a little magic on top of it. Royal flush. Couple of aces up my sleeve and all. The car pulls up and John hitches a ride. This is the same guy, though 25 years younger and no scar on his face. We get his name, Philip Tolly. And again, nice job, Steve Dillon, that we can instantly recognize this guy when he looks so different. Right, true. I hope you've got someone to stay with in London, son. I see a lot of lads like you moving down there expecting the world, and... Yeah, I know the streets aren't paved with gold in that. We might Gaz move down this summer. He's got a flat. Oh, he'll be meeting you, will he? Nah, nah. Just told him I'd be down sometime before Christmas, like. Seems I got the cash together. So you're not expected? Nah. Right. That was a bit silly of John. Yeah, this guy's definitely gathering some information that he doesn't need to have for any reasonable purpose. Yeah. Gaz, by the way, is Gary Lester, one of the Newcastle crew. He got really into heroin after Newcastle, and he died in Hellblazer number two. Yes, indeed. Also, Philip is talking here about making your fortune in London not being so easy, which to me reminded me of Davy. You know? John's oh, yeah. homeless friend who moved down to London, but was finding it no easier. So John narrates that this guy just seems pretty normal and boring at first. I mean, a lot of people poo-poo Norwegian wine, but I think that's where the future lies. I want to suck you. Chateauneuf de Fjord. That's what you want. There's money to be made. A friend of mine's in touch with a chap called Lars, you see, and... Hold on. What, uh, what'd you just say, like? Twenty quid a case? Before that. I want to suck you. 
Yeah. When John asks him to stop the car, Philip instead accelerates past 80, swerves and bounces the car off a rock wall, driving like a maniac. Yeah, and we see John get increasingly scared as the car goes faster and faster. That could have been nasty, says the old bastard. Yeah, he's basically demonstrating to John that he's completely in control of the situation, that he's got his life in his hands here. He says, it won't be that bad, son. Yeah, and John, with tears running down his face, agrees. So he's already crossed the line. He's already a fucking scary bastard. Right. And we understand completely why John is pissed at him. There, there, you won't try and run away now, will you? You're just a boy. I'm much stronger than you are. He uh, leans his head down towards John's crotch, but when he does, John knees him in the face. Bastard! Ah! And this guy is just vomiting blood all over the car now. Just arterial spray. Like, uh, arterial's an exaggeration, but lots and lots of blood. John even notices that it's too much. Yeah, John books it and thinks to himself, Why so much blood? You don't bleed like that when you bite your lip or break your nose or even sever your tongue. He runs and he falls and he's found by a cop. They didn't believe a word of it. They brought me along anyway. What the hell? They could always do me for wasting police time. I swear to God, mate, just around this next bend like. Better be. It was just starting to sink in, too. He was probably long gone, patched up his cut lip or whatever, and driven off never to be seen again, like he probably had loads of times before, leaving me right the way up shit creek. On reflection, I wish he had. The cops get John in the cruiser, they drive him back to where the car is supposed to be, and the car is still there. We see a cop walk slowly up to the car, look inside, and... Ah! Uh, I better go, and... says his other partner, who's been sitting with John. Later on, after the ten-mile trip to London, when I screamed the whole way, I began to think about how normal he'd seemed. And I knew then that the magic I wanted was not an abstract, ethereal thing, to be picked up and dropped whenever I felt like it. That it's the real energy of emotion and life that runs around and in and out of us. That it's in our hearts and minds. That hell is everywhere. And the devil sits right beside us. As we turn the page, we get a full page dedicated to Philip's condition here. His face as we see that a razor blade is shoved up through his upper lip. A razor blade that we can infer was in his hand or in his mouth when John hit him. Right. So he was planning to go to work on... Constantine with that razor blade. Back in the church, the old man says he's here to talk to God. Or his God is what he says. He says his mind is clear for the first time, but God's not listening. Will you? Everything, says John as he lights a cigarette. Never enough, is it? Curiosity killed the cat and it's almost done me in a couple of times and all. But I can never just face these friggers. John is reflecting that he always needs to know. He always needs to look inside to see it for himself, even when it gets too deep or when it starts to look too much like a mirror. Right, yeah, he's always got to try to figure out what it's like to be mad, even when it's like a mirror on himself. He has a history of doing this, and I think we saw this with the family man, too, that when he looks at a villain, he kind of sees a way that he could have gone, and he wonders if he's headed that way himself. That's why he's obsessed with trying to see how it happens, what it's like. I'm telling you this because... If you can only understand, I was a priest. In the 60s, Philip despaired because no young people were coming to church. Uh, he figured that was because he was preaching against indulgence, and it was the 60s. People were big into indulgence back then. Not indulgences, which is, you know, a completely different era <laughs> of the Catholic Church. 
<laughs> he became bitter, he says, and the confessional became an anvil, where I hammered that bitterness to a white-hot hissing rage. I'm, uh, I'm a bit, I feel, you know, confused at the minute, says a young hippie lad in the confessional. No. You must begin, forgive me, father, for I have sinned. Then you must tell me how long it has been since your last confession. Then you may confess your sins. Oh, um, forgive me, father, I have sinned. I haven't confessed in a few years, I suppose. And the lad goes on to say that he was at a party the other night, and he and an old friend of his got intoxicated and made love, and he doesn't know how to feel about it. Philip narrates they had made what he chose to call love, which gives us a hint what Philip thinks about it. Right. Fighting back anger and nausea, I gave him ten Our Fathers and ten Hail Marys. Then I telephoned his father in the local police station. A judge gave him a six-month suspended sentence. His father broke his jaw, his arm, and six of his ribs. I love how the art here, as it's narrating this, how this guy got sent to jail and then got the shit beat out of him by his father, and the priest feels no regret about it. And the art shows him sitting here just peacefully, happily reading his newspaper and drinking his cup of coffee or tea. And it's just like, it's just so chilling. He has absolutely no conscience about what he does to these young hippies who he feels such contempt for. Right. So he, in theory, he feels that this kid has sinned, so desperate measures to get him away from sin. But he continues to narrate, It was a long time before I realized that I was satisfying not the Lord's will, but my own. So yeah, at first he tells himself that it's about getting these kids away from sin, but really it's about his own anger and bigotry. And so it goes on. He keeps secretly calling police or parents to get kids punished for their sins. I listened to the evil of the love generation, a licentiousness that filled me with hate. My punishments were delivered by parents and constabulary, requiring nothing from me but a careful word, a solicitous phone call. Until one evening a young woman came to confess her sins to God. She informed me that she'd attended an orgy two nights previously, where alcohol and narcotics had dissolved all inhibition. And at the height of it, she told me, with barely a stifled giggle, she had found herself in the arms of her younger brother. And at this, he just comes right out of the confessional, walks around, and punches her in the face. Harlot! Huh, comes a voice. Yeah! The girl runs off as Philip goes up to talk to this guy who's staring at the cross. Crucifix, I guess. And you can just tell that that's the devil. <laughs> but let's talk about this devil. <laughs> well, it's either the devil or Doctor Who. <laughs> this is definitely the '60s devil. I tell I, folks what he's wearing. I, honest to God, I love his outfit. Actually, <laughs> so uh, he's a handsome man with uh, long, flowing black hair. He is wearing a spotted purple shirt with a wide-lapeled sky blue overcoat. And as you said, you can tell this guy instantly is the devil, but especially if you've met him before, because this is the first of the fallen. Right. Do you know he's coming back? The stranger tells this story. He says that Jesus will be reborn in south-central L.A. He'll run with a gang for a while, realize who he is, and then work tirelessly for the peaceful advancement of the African-American culture. And then he will be kissed on the cheek by a man named Geldof in front of an NYPD SWAT team. Just like last time, neither the religious establishment nor the government will believe him. And he, in turn, will once again misidentify the primary motivating factor of humanity as love. And of course, just like last time, he'll leave things in much worse mess than he found them. All the same, 
He'll look pretty good up there with dreadlocks and a Fender Stratocaster, won't he? I did a little bit of research here, and as far as I can tell, the first is not talking about a specific person who would live between this scene in the early 60s and the comic book coming out in the early 90s. No, It's just an invented story. Right. What? What are you talking about? Who are you? You don't know? Your friend there was fond of telling me to get behind him. You know who I am, Father Tully. And as he says this, his eyes turn red and his voice changes. It's kind of like the way the word of God is portrayed in Preacher. Yeah, that's a good point. Now he's got this kind of... word of anti-God. These jagged speech bubbles and letters, this scary voice he's doing now. Yeah. Oh, by the way, we can read written on the crucifix in Father Tully's church, I-N-R-I, which stands for Iesus Nazarenus Rex Iudeorum, or Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. A board bearing this inscription was apparently nailed to the cross by Pontius Pilate, so this is a real feature of crucifixes. It is written I-N-B-I in Eastern Orthodox churches. Father, protect me. I am your servant, Father. This is your house. Father, why? Yes, he does tend to move in mysterious ways, doesn't he? That's part of why I'm here. First says he's not here to hurt Philip, and he asks what happened to the teenagers whose confessions he's recently taken. Some are in hospitals, some left home. The Peterson boy? The Peterson boy? After he went to prison? After he was buggered eleven times on his first night inside. He killed himself. No, he didn't, Father. He tried, but a three-story drop wasn't quite enough. I was... I wanted to save them. From me? What would I want with a bunch of hippie layabouts who smoke too much dope and screw all the time? No, Father. What I want are total bastards. And so the first leads Philip back to the confessional to take his confession. Sitting comfortably? Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It's my first confession. Yeah, and we don't know what he says here, but it's apparently something to the effect of God being a bastard. Yeah, whatever he says, it causes Philip to smash his way out of the confessional, shouting, Empire of Lies! Wow. (laughs) He rips his collar off and he yells at the Jesus on the crucifix, Now I know! He uh, calls Jesus the true Lord of Lies and he rips the crucifix off the wall. It wasn't for our sins, not for ours. Yeah, he picks up the baptismal font and smashes the statue of Christ to pieces. Then, over two silent pages, he pours gasoline all over the church and burns it down. Without leaving first. Bold move. Let's see how it works out for him. It apparently worked out okay. We see him sitting here crying in the ruins, but then he's alive in a subsequent scene. Yeah, we go back to him with Constantine in the other church. There then began a period in which I was a little unclear. I think that... Well, despite some of the things I did, that my manner had changed. My anger, bitterness, frustration, it was gone, and with it went that petty spite that made me betray those children's trust. I was kind, gentle, and compassionate. Most of all, I was understanding. I was a better priest. But as he's narrating this, we see that he actually became a deranged serial killer who murdered hippies in a state of religious ecstasy. Right, we see him smiling calmly as he suffocates this kid with a pillow. So he traveled the country killing. He baptized unborn twins, he says, which is to say he drowned their mother in Loch Lomond. And then he decides to head south, and that's when he met John. Philip asks if John wondered what happened to him. John says he'd more or less forgotten about Philip. For a while. I reckoned they'd stuck you in some rubber room for the rest of your life. I was hoping you got ECT every night. But I've had worse shit happen to me since. 
I more or less forgot about you. Till tonight. Philip reveals that he was in a mental institution for 25 years. Only for what he almost did to John. The authorities never found out about any of the other killings. Every night, he says, the first visited him and reminded him what he told him in confession. I was never short of company. But a year ago, everything changed. It's over, Father Tully. You're cured. Yeah, we can imagine that the first appearing to Father Tully more or less coincides with his burning need to get a revenge on John. I don't know if it's been exactly a year since Dangerous Habits. Well, yeah, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here, but yes, what John figures out is that the first arranged for him to be released from the institution so that he could cross paths with John. Yeah, Tully was just released from the mental institution this afternoon. Yeah, he was cured, but it took a year for the doctors to be sure of it. Right. He seems to have calmed down a bit about the first's confession, and he came to this church to ask God whether it's true. So John finally asks him, What was his confession? And then he puts a pencil in each eye and headbutts the pew in front of him. Yeah, and that brings us back to the beginning. Right, so turns out John did not kill this guy, he killed himself. And he thinks to himself, he let you go because he knew you'd be running into me. He knew whatever he told you was so awful you could never repeat it. But you wouldn't need to. You were a message, Tolly. One day soon he'll catch up with me and pay me what he owes me. And then, just before I die, I'll hear the devil's confession too. I notice that he flips his cigarette into the pool of Philip's blood to put it out. Yeah, and then as the final, kind of most of the page here, we get a large panel of him turning his back to the crucifix as he walks away. Well, you go first. What did you think of that? I thought it was a good comic, if kind of short on real revelation, right? Yeah. Like, the big plot twist here seems to be that in the world of in the world of this comic book, God's kind of a bastard. <laughs> but we sort of already knew that, right? Because... During Dangerous Habits, John talks about how the reason it would be bad if hell all went to war with each other is that it would then allow heaven to conquer everything. And that would mean slavery and no free will for the human race. Yeah, John has always taken the position that the eternal war between heaven and hell must go on so that Earth can remain in the middle, blessedly right. neutral. Right, to keep heaven occupied. Because we are told... That, like, heaven's rule over Earth would be absolutist and totalitarian. Yeah. So it sets up the big question of what the devil's confession is and then doesn't answer it. Which is disappointing to me because I generally hope that an annual or a special is going to be a good standalone story. And this feels kind of weak out of context because we don't get the big revelation that it was building up to. Yeah, I wonder if we really need it, though. I mean, I kind of, I think we kind of get all that we, all that we need, right? Like, it's it's obvious that what the first of the fallen tells this guy makes him quite disillusioned with God, and he starts yelling, not for our sins. Maybe it's just in the context of having already read Preacher. Uh -huh. but it seems like Garth Ennis is kind of setting up an idea of God here, who the things he does are not to redeem humanity from their sins, but to serve his own need to be loved. Maybe, yeah. I suppose if there's a war between heaven and hell and which way souls go matters, then you could... I don't remember if I'm making this up or if this is actually somebody's version of the story. You could view the birth of a redeemer 
as a move to get more souls on God's side. Right. I don't know if that was the intention or if when he says not for our sins, he means that Christ was born to redeem God's sins because God's kind of a bastard. Right. Could be. I guess you read a little more into it than I did because I really felt kind of mystified. And it was surprising to me because Garth Ennis is so good at the disturbing reveal, because he's so bold in other contexts, it almost felt a little oddly gutless not to have the big reveal here. Yeah, I, again, I didn't feel we really needed it, but maybe there is something else, a sort of unique twist on it that we'll get later on. And if that's the case, then yeah, I think you make a you make a strong argument for why it should have been in this issue instead of instead of kicked down the down the road. Hmm. So in general, I didn't care that much for this special. The problem isn't so much that John's just an audience for this story. That kind of happens all the time in this series. Sure. But that the story is all in the past. It's all established. There aren't really any stakes here. Well, that's sort of in keeping with the with the motif, right, of the confessional. Yeah, I suppose that's true. We're sitting in a church and we're going to hear a kind of bad story that's going to be a bit horrifying, but we kind of already know who who lives and who dies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I mean, the dramatic hook at the beginning is nice enough. What the hell is John doing with a bloody dead guy in a church? It's not as bad as I had feared in that I really wasn't looking forward to reading a story about John being sexually abused by a priest and discovering that was the source of all his trauma. Yeah, I felt the same way. I was kind of afraid when we went into this that it was going to be like, oh, John just saw the priest that molested him as a kid. It's going to be another one of these. Like, it turns out that another character was molested by priests, and that's, you know, the source of why he's so fucked up. And it's just, it's just a cliche. But I thought that this issue managed to kind of... Go its own original way, yeah. Yeah, do a variation on it. Yeah, I thought that was, like I said, much better than I had sort of dreaded going into this issue. It's a cliche, and... In addition to being a cliche, it just doesn't fit the continuity of what we know about John's life already. He was right. already fucked up by 16. He was a fucked up kid when we saw him as a kid. He had already cursed his dad. Right, true. So it wasn't a change to the Hellblazer continuity that I was looking forward to, and I'm glad that's not the direction that it went. Right. Got a Constantine moment? I think the Constantine moment is just the fact that the flashback opens with him in the middle of a three-way. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was one of my two... <laughs> Okay, what else did you have? One of my contenders is that he got two American co-eds to sleep with him and share their weed effortlessly. <laughs> right. Um, the other one is just the fact that he happens to run into Philip the very afternoon he was released. Not like a couple of weeks later. <laughs> no. He walks out of the mental institution and into John's life. Perfect timing. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe uh, the first of the Fallen is just such a good schemer that he knew exactly the hour and the day to, you know, make him better. <laughs> that would set him on course to being released at precisely the hour and the day would, that would allow him to cross paths with John Constantine. Yeah, I mean, I guess if he was in a mental institution near enough to where John lives, and we know that John is quite near where he lives because he was leaving his own smoke shop. Right, where he was buying smokes from his friend Ajay. Yeah. Well, anything else to cover? Not, I think, in this comic. Okay. Well, join us for our next Hellblazer episode in which John gets singed by Damnation's Flame. But first, join us next week as we cover the end of the first story arc of Transmetropolitan. And Spider Jerusalem climbs up on the roof. Vertigais is written and performed by Eric and myself. 
I produce the show, Eric Handles Social Media, and our theme song is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertiguys.blueberry.com. B-L-U-B-R-R-Y is how you spell blueberry in this particular context. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. Send us an email. Send us your questions or concerns, your recommendations. That's vertiguys at gmail.com. You can get in touch with me at vertiguys on Twitter. And you can reach me at blankcastshawn. We have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash vertiguys. If you leave positive reviews on the Apple Podcasts app or anywhere else that we're likely to encounter them, we'll do our best to read those on the air. But we really encourage you to, by any means that you can, uh, kind of boost the show, leave positive ratings and reviews, recommend to your friends, that sort of thing. Yeah, spread the word about Vertiguys. But as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. I've been showing people this comic book cover that I really like. I think it really illustrates the point that we were talking about, about like comic books looking like comic books instead of like boring, muted, realistic colors. Okay. This is from 1985. Oh, shit. Okay. Captain America, number 315. Yeah. I'm narrating a little bit for the internet. Right. But, okay, it's the Serpent Society. They've defeated Captain America. Cavs' colors are very bright blues. The Serpent Society outfits are fucking ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Totally ridiculous. But, yeah, it's it's brightly colored and eye-catching, definitely. Yeah, it just, it pops. And it's so, it's so dynamic and so engaging and just fucking looks rad. Oh, I missed this the first time. That the Serpent Society dude is narrating, The Serpent Society's finally got Captain America where we want him. Captain America, lying on the ground in chains, is thinking, that's what they think. <laughs> that is fucking rad. Yeah. To me, like, the Batgirl-Nightwing relationship is pretty important to my understanding of both characters. Okay. In your verse, Batgirl and Robin have dated. Yeah. Okay. Also, I think canonically, Batgirl and Nightwing spent the night together in the honeymoon suite that Batman and Catwoman had booked. <laughs> That's canonical. I did not know that. That is what happened. <laughs> I did not know that. I remember reading an interview with, like, Wolfman and Perez or something, whoever was writing Teen Titans at the time, at the time they, like, first got together. And when they first got together, I mean, they had probably flirted throughout the golden age and whatever. Yeah. But, but the first time they actually got together was, like, in the 90s. Okay. They had been around for a long time. Yeah. Well, what did the interview say? Um, just that, like, you know, they thought this was an interesting direction to take the characters, and they were really going to try to to do it justice. Maybe oh. it wasn't an interesting interview. The point is, I remember reading an interview with the writers saying, okay, we're finally going to hook up Dick and Barbara. Well, it's a hook that sells some fucking comic books, I'll tell you that, as a guy who buys them. <laughs> like, you know, if you just never know when in a... Batgirl or Nightwing comic, you're gonna get that, like, sweet, sweet shipping action. <laughs> you have to read every issue. <laughs> and they do. I had they, no like, idea you were that invested in this They, ship. like, drop little breadcrumbs of it, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because it's like, you'll go issues and issues and issues with, like, they don't, you know, cross over at all, and then there'll be, like, an issue where they cross over, but it's just, like, one of them kind of gives the other the cold shoulder because they're feeling moody. And then, like, randomly you'll get, like, oh, yeah, they spent the night together in that hotel room. <laughs> and it's like, fuck! <laughs> Let me buy 80 more comics! This is the shit! Let me fucking boil that up and shoot it right into my veins! 